0: A happy Christmas. That's what they say in England where we live for three years. I've always liked Happy Christmas better. Will you consider with me three central (coughs) questions about Christmas? Three central questions about Christmas. I'm going right for the judgment. Are you ready? Did it happen? How? Did it happen? How did it happen Why? life? You may think I'm wasting my time on the first. After all, you've kindly agreed to join us this evening to worship for some reason or other. But can I just remind you that how many years ago a book was written called The Myth of God Incarnate, And we don't just simply have people in our culture that don't believe that it happened. We have people in the church. They were the authors of the book. That's why it was called The Myth of God so we need to pause for just a moment and remind ourselves that we're talking about a fact of history. One poem and one story. My favorite poem about Christmas. It's by John Shea, a Catholic priest in the greater Philadelphia area. It's called Sharon's Christmas Prayer. It's about a five-year-old girl and Christmas. It goes like this. She was five sure of the facts, and recited them with slow solemnity, convinced every word was revelation. And found them because the star litted the roof. Shepherds came, you could pet the sheep but not. Then the baby was born. And do you know who he was? Her eyes inflated to silver dove. Children see things so often that many of us. The baby was God, and she dove in the air and dove under a cushion. It. Because it's so true and it's so awesome, she can't even take it Now one story from someone I'm very fond of, Fleming Rutledge, one of the great preachers in this country, who spent most of her ministry in New York City at Grace <coughs> Episcopal Church. She tells a story about Christmas, and it goes like this. Years ago when I served at Grace Church in New York City, I used to hang around with some urbane literary types, most of them utterly disdainful of religion. I have never forgotten one conversation I had. The man in question, knowing I was a priest of the church, made a confession to me. You do know this about being a priest, why people show their home movies on their collar. It's actually <laughs> so dangerous to go to dinner parties. He told me very sheepishly that he'd done something last year behind his wife's back. Apparently, she long-since banished every hint of religion from their household. She held Christian faith in contempt as a relic of a superstitious and unenlightened era. Church, of course, without the question. Her husband told me that he found himself so longing to hear the story from St. Luke that he smuggled a King James Bible into the bathroom, locked the door, and read it to himself. That's a true story. I've been thinking about it ever since. Do you think that his wife would have required him to take Twas the Night Before Christmas into the bathroom? Or a children's Christmas in Wales? Or even Dickens' Christmas Carol? It's something to think about, isn't it? The only Christmas story that has something transcendent about it is St. Luke's. That's why it continues to have a hold on people. God is in this story. Something greater than the birth of a baby is here. This is a story about something mysterious, something ultimate. And here comes your C.S. Lewis injection for the evening, a central part of his conversion one night by the fireplace when one of his friends, who was a lifelong atheist, got a little bit drunk, and they were having a conversation and said to him in somewhat of a drunken stupor before Lewis was a Christian, you know, it's a wrong thing, that story about the dying God. It seems to have really happened once. It seared its way into Lewis's consciousness. He could never forget it, an atheist. It's a wrong thing, that story about the dying God. It seems to have really happened Alice. us. Well, that's it, brothers and sisters, that's it. It's Luke's story. It's our story. It's everyone's story. It's the story that transcends all stories. It's the greatest story ever told, and it's true. It really happened in space and time. It's history. It's real fault it's ultimate I upside down under the tree, and he's looking backwards over his mother, and all of a sudden he says, mom, look, and she's like, what, you know how kids are, and she, she, he points at one of the ornaments, which he just happens to have fully in his sight under the tree, and she, he says to his mother, God has become my son. God would really introduce to he was not a scrooge. He was a kind, decent, mostly good man, generous to his family, upright in his dealings. But he just couldn't believe all this incarnation stuff which the church is proclaimed at Christmas. It didn't make any sense. And he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. I'm truly sorry to distress you, he told his wife. But I'm not going with you to worship this Christmas Eve. He said if you it did, you'd feel like the rather just stay home, but he would wait up for them until they got back. So he stayed, and they went to the midnight service. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, as Harvey tells the story, snow began to fall. He went to the window and watched the flurries getting heavier and heavier, and then he went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. However, minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound. And then another thud, and then another thud. Sort of a thump, or a thud. At First he thought someone must be throwing snowballs against his living room window. But then he went to the front door to investigate and found he had a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They had been caught in a storm, in a desperate search for shelter, had tried to f- fly through his large, landscape window. Well, he couldn't let the poor creatures just lie there and freeze. So he remembered the barn where his children stayed in their pony. It was obvious this would be a warm shelter. All he had to do was direct the birds to it, no problem put on a coat, galoshes, tramped through the deepening snow to the barn, opened the doors wide, turned on the light, and yelled to the birds to come in. You know what I'm gonna say, not a chance. He figured, strategy number two, that food would work. So he went back to the house, got a whole bunch of breadcrumbs, sprinkled them very carefully as a trail in the snow, he made a beautiful trail straight to the barn. To his dismay, the birds ate a few of the bread- breadcrumbs ignored the rest and got lost, flapping helplessly around in the snow. He tried catching them. He tried shooting them in the barn by walking in every direction. He tried waving his arms. It's, instead, they scattered in every direction, except into the warm, light water. And then he realized something. Like, they were afraid. Of him. To them, he realized, I am a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them, but how? Because any move. They would not be led or shoot because they feared it. If only he thought I could become a bird and mingle with them and speak their language, then they would not be afraid. Then I could show them a way to safety and warmth, to the warm, safe home. But I would have to be one of them so that they could hear and see and understand. And as Harvey tells the story, at that moment the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind, and there he stood listening to the bells of the destiny of the listening to the pealing bells celebrating the grand tidings of Christmas, and he sank to his knees in the snow. God had to become our size. There was a moment in history when eternity intercepted with time, when the author So a mother battling Showing in the process. How could God reveal himself in a way to me that would leave no room for doubt? If there was no room for doubt, there would be no room for me. Why did it have to happen this way? Because we're human beings, and we can't handle all of God at once. The early church had a very vocal critic in the Roman Empire in the second century called Celsus, and he said Christmas was a bunch of belonging, and he knew it was a bunch of belonging because if God he came into human history he knew how it would happen it would come he would come right into the center of the roman court and there would be trumpets blaring and there would be everybody as, as a great entourage to greet him because he was royalty and he would appear as royalty and look like royalty obviously these christians didn't know what they were talking about it was a myth it was silly god would never show human history in such a simple and way. Emily Dickinson, see what you make of this. Tell all the truth, she says, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, too bright for infirm delight, the truth, superb surprise. As lightning to the j- children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, for every man where meek souls will receive him, the dear Christ enters in. It had to be gradual. It had to be contextual. It had to be with condescension, or we as humans couldn't have understood it and couldn't have handled it. That's on our side, but there's another side, which is the God's side. And Christmas is lots and lots and lots of things, but it's especially about God's love. John 3.16, what's, So love the world that he gave his only begotten son. And you're not going to understand the manger unless you understand that the manger is the first step that leads all the way to the cross, that the one who's born is named Jesus, who's going to save us from our sins, so he's born to die. He's born to die in our place. He's born to reconcile us back to God. For the love of God is greater than the measure of men's minds, says one of the great The heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Why does it have to happen this way? It has to happen this way gradually because we're human beings and we couldn't handle it. But it has to happen this way because God's love will do absolutely everything necessary for our life and our salvation. No matter what the cost, no matter how far He has to go. One last story about the love of God and then I'm done. I love true stories about Christmas when things go wrong. This is the story about a friend of Tony Campola's who teaches in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, if you know the area. He has one of those schools, Campola says, that run all the way from kindergarten up to the eighth grade, including special ed. And one year, one of his students was really intellectually slow, just couldn't do well in classes. But he was a go getter in his own way, and when the Christmas pageant came, he wanted a part. And not only did he want a part, he wanted a speaking part. He refused to settle for anything less. So they had this big meeting and all this falling roll behind the scenes, and they decided to give this kid a part of the innkeeper. They figured he could handle it because all he had was two lines, you ready? No room, he only had to say it once when Mary came the first time, and then after she spoke, he had to say it again. Two lines, no room, number one, and then no room again. That's it, that's his lines. So you know what I'm gonna say, the night comes for the passage. Mary knocks on the door, He opens the door and he says in a brusque fashion, no room. (laughs) Mary says, "But I'm sick and I'm cold and I'm going to have a baby. If you don't give me a place to sleep, my baby will be born in the cold, cold night. And as Campola's friend tells the story, the kid just froze. He just stood there. Total silence. And you know what it's like on stage when something goes wrong. It was an eternity Finally, the boy behind him nudged him and said, "No room! No room! Say no room!" And finally.